we don't need to rewild the whole world. If every farm transitioned to a regenerative way, if you look at the mountain that's wild across the river right now from my farm, and you look at the soil at my farm, there's much more carbon sequestered. There's much more soil health. There's much more microbiology. There's much more diversity because I'm stewarding the land to be even better than wilding. We don't have to have this like villainize the farmers and take their land away and rewild it. We can actually work with the farmers to train them to how they can steward the land. And instead of putting all this money into vertical farming and growing food in cities, we can use those subsidies instead of for corn or soy or whatever to grow more carbon in the soil. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Over the last few weeks, we've taken a deep dive into the future of food, farming, food procurement, and creating communities that people will want to live in. And today, I'm thrilled to further this discussion with one incredible woman who committed to be part of our food solution, from the regenerative farms that she owns and runs to the restaurant she owns in greater Los Angeles called Sage Vegan Bistro, which she founded and co-owns with actor Woody Harrelson. She also sits on the board of Kiss the Ground, a film narrated by Woody, and an incredible educational tool about regenerative farming and the import of healthy soil that I encourage everyone to watch again and again. And for those of you who may remember the interview I hosted with John Rulak, who is the executive producer of Kiss the Ground, you can always dive back into that episode to learn more too. It's my absolute honor and privilege to introduce you today to Molly Englehart. Molly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. First, Molly, I'd just love for you to share your origin story. What brought you to this moment? I was raised on a small farm in upstate New York. My mom made dresses and my dad was a carpenter and we had an apple orchard. So I grew up in a family on farm kind of business. And then my mom became a fashion designer and her selling dresses at the farmer's market did better than the apples. And so life evolved from there. And when my mom and dad got divorced, my dad started Cafe Gratitude and I started Sage. The same year that he opened Cafe Gratitude in Los Angeles, I opened Sage in Los Angeles as well. And I had been raised vegetarian. I grew up on a small farm. I felt pretty connected to the earth and I thought I was doing my part. And I would say that in my early thirties, I was pretty apathetic to that, what the future held. And I held a pretty, a view that was like, we're going to all burn in hell, but I'm drinking my oat milk latte and driving a hybrid. So do about it. Like so many that live and work in Northern California, frankly, driving their Teslas around now, not the Priuses so much, but yes. Yeah. It went from Priuses to Teslas, but, and then I listened to a podcast, not a podcast, a Ted talk with Graham Sate and Mm. In that moment of the TED talk with Graham say a couple red pill moments was, well, what if the vegan diet is not better for the environment? Like, what if that, like, who said that? Like, and where is the science behind it? I'm a vegetarian still to this day. I've been a vegetarian my whole life and thought that that was the right path. And then 
I had opened all these restaurants and then he broke it down pretty clearly that the number one cause of methane in the environment was food scraps. And I realized that I was owning a restaurant, putting tons of food scraps into the landfill. And so first step was how can I compost all the stuff and LA didn't have a system and da, da, da. So I started looking at getting a farm and then my husband was undocumented when we got married. So I couldn't get a loan from a bank and all these things. And so it took us some years, but we bought a farm and we're like, okay, now we can compost all the food scraps. But then I was like, okay, well, what's next? And so then we did a start a CSA during the pandemic and we grow a bunch of food for our restaurants. We bring all the food scraps from our restaurants and um, trying to have this like closed food loop. And that's kind of how we've gotten to where we are today. And we have a brewery as well. And we grow, we have the only certified regenerative and certified organic. I mean, I think we have the only certified regenerative hops in the world. And then the only hop yard in Southern California that's organic. That's fantastic. So we bring the brewery grain back to feed the animals and then compost the poop from the animals, go to the compost, and then that makes more soil. And then the avocados and lemons and oranges and vegetables go back to the restaurants in a circle. Yeah. Well, the importance of circularity is really key. And I think it's something that we need to talk more about too. Regeneration as a concept is so much more than just regenerative agriculture too. It's really thinking about this cradle to cradle principle and ensuring that we are using the materials we have to their best ability instead of just losing this oil and watching it go turn into dust and just drift away with the wind. Yeah, I think of regeneration as giving more than we take, that so much of our economy is an extractive economy. And what if our economy could be more about what we leave behind rather than what we take out? So that's how I think of it. And I'm an environmentalist in the sense of I'm not committed to selling Teslas or solar panels or whatever. I really want my kids to be able to drink the water in the future, eat the food in the future, and procreate if they want to in the future. And all of that is at risk right now based on the forever chemicals and all of that. And so clean soil, growing clean food, creating healthy microbiology in the gut is what I would say is the most important thing that we should or could be talking about right now. And it seems to be on the back burner to a lot of the green, what I call the industrial green complex, where we're trying to sell batteries and all these things, solar panels, electric cars. But I'm more committed to the human impact and what are we as humans doing and what is our environment like? We're in a fish tank and if we just keep pooping in it, it's not going to be good. Mm -hmm. Well, my background started in the omega-3 industry, right? So I've been in nutrition forever. And I personally moved away from consuming fish because I was so concerned with the chemicals that are in our oceans. Even though I love fish, I love to consume fish for years. I put Nordic Naturals on the map as the head of sales, marketing, and education for almost a decade. And feel like now my work in the algae space is all about kind of, it's a penance in a way, because we can create better solutions that don't rape our environment. And I use that word if it's a very strong word, but I mean, it's more than extraction. It's like we've pillaged, we've raped, we've just taken for granted everything that should be ours. And I shouldn't say should be ours, but that should be the futures, right? It's not property. It's the planet. And so we get to this space where we start to look at everything as an asset. And if you start to look at everything, including our soil, as an asset and extracting from this extractive perspective, then 
you're not necessarily building the future that you want to live in. And the problem of all these chemicals is just something that is front of mind for me, especially as I transition away from eating more animal products to more vegetarian ones, and then notice that there are so many options that just aren't there in the regenerative or organic space, specifically in packaged foods. Like let's say you wanted to go ahead and have a Boca burger. You can get a Boca burger that's well-made, right? But then it's essentially a lot of grains and some of them may or may not be a granite organic. And then you have the impossible burger coming in as a solution, but it's not a solution. It's a bunch of soy and GMO products all packaged into something that is in plastic. I don't eat any fake meat products at all. We don't carry any in my restaurants. I'm a stand for whole foods <laughs> and whether that, whatever that looks like, I don't think I actually don't, and this is a disagreement with many vegans and many people in the same space as me, but I don't think that meat alternatives are the future at all. I don't think that packaged food, sterile food, food that is lacking in the microbiology, I mean, no, it may be the future. It's not the future that I want or I'm committed to. Right. I believe that smaller food systems, hub and spoke models. I was on a podcast last week with a gentleman from Ranchers Re Reboot, and he said, shake the hand that feeds you. And I think that that needs to be the future. Shake the hand that feeds you. Like, you know, your farmer, you're getting food from somewhere that you know about, whether it's mail order, if it's something that's not regionally available to you, or it's local from your local farmer's market or whatever, but that you are knowing who your farmer is and what they're doing. I have zero interest in anything that comes out of a lab, anything that comes out of a printer, anything that has some special GMO yeast that was invented to make it congeal, like zero, zero, zero interest. I don't eat meat, but if I was to want to eat that kind of protein, I would definitely eat meat over an Impossible Burger. And that might make me seem crazy or weird, but I don't think environmentally or health-wise, eating processed foods is the answer for humanity. If we care about health mm -hmm. and mental health is so deeply connected to gut health. And when we look around at a society that has severe mental illness, we have learning disabilities at extreme rates compared to just 20 years ago. We have to acknowledge that the chemicals in our food, in our water, and also fungicides and herbicides that are deeply damaging our microbiology are deeply damaging our mental health. And that is unacceptable. And we think, okay, so it's Roundup and it doesn't impact my body. Yeah, the skin and bones that houses my soul, it doesn't necessarily impact that. But it does impact all of the microbiology that operates just like a fungus or a plant or a bacteria or a virus out in the world. And so that is the problem with how all of our grains are sprayed with Roundup right before being harvested, or not all of them, a large percentage, so that they can be on time. So we want to spray it then, and it'll be dry 14 days later, and then we can combine harvest it, and there's no going out checking what's the moisture. Oh my God, it's seven o'clock on a Friday. We have to start combining right now. None of that has to happen because you can spray it with Roundup and then you know what the date will be dry enough to combine it. Well, that is not what Roundup was ever made for. And now every time we feed our kids Cheerios or pizza or whatever, we are killing the microbiology, anything with a shikimate pathway. And so, yes, it supposedly doesn't do damage to the skin and bones, but we're only 50% that and we're 50% the microbiology that keeps that healthy. Yeah. I've spent some time talking to people in the pesticide space. And the first mistake we made with glyphosate was 
approving it in the first place because it's a water-soluble pesticide. And when you have a water-soluble pesticide, it gets into the water table, it gets into the soil, it sticks around, it leaches out, it ends up in the Mississippi River, it ends up along the coastlines everywhere, and ultimately it is creating a toxic environment. I want to explain something for the audience, though, because they may not understand exactly why glyphosate is used as an agent just before harvest. And I just know this because I've been around a lot of farming, too, but it's like when you have alfalfa fields or you have oat fields and you're getting ready to harvest, you cannot harvest that field if part of the field hasn't dried yet. It's not mature enough. It's still green. And the reason that you can't harvest it at that point is if you do and you put it in bales, it is ultimately going to just start to rot. It gets moldy, right? And so they essentially spray the glyphosate. The glyphosate acts as a drying agent. And this puts it far beyond its intended use because of the fact that it is ultimately sprayed. They spray a lot of it all over the grains. And I don't know if you've ever conceived of trying to wash a grain, but this is not something that really gets washed off of them. So then it ends up in the foods, it ends up in the Cheerios, it ends up in your pizza crust, it ends up everywhere. And this is why it's absolutely so problematic. And then we're also using things like petrochemicals as the agents for fertilizers and we're further poisoning ourselves. So I've heard you talk a bit about this. I've heard you talk about fungicides. I think we really just have to help people understand why this is such a big problem and why we should be choosing organic and regenerative over everything else. And yes, at an increased cost, but because the cost is not later going to impact our health in such a way that we don't have fertile children. I mean, that's the extreme. What I mean, it's what is the true cost, I guess, yeah. is what I always say is like people say my farm might not be the most profitable situation, but what is the true cost of not doing it this way? People are so concerned about the future of, and there's too many people on the planet. I hear a lot of people talking about it. We're going to hit 9 billion blah or whatever it is, I think. But if you look at statistics and sperm rates, we're looking at by 2040, which my youngest kid will be like 26 years old or something, the average sperm of a man will be zero. And so people can Google this. If you think that's a crazy thing for me to say. And so I think it's weird that we're still operating in the paradigm that we're in an overpopulation. We're actually in like a mass extinction of the human race, like a collapse happening. We also having one in 30 children with autism right now. If we continue at the trajectory that we're on since the 70s till now, we'll be at one in three children in the next 10 years with autism if we're on the trajectory that we are have been on this time. And it's not just petrochemicals and it's not just glyphosates. We're talking about there's a whole industry of fire retardants on everything. Everything you bring into your house new, that your furniture, your television, everything has fire retardants on it because like somebody burned something down and then a law was passed. And so there's these endocrine interrupters that are getting sprayed on everything we bring into our homes. And then there's fragrances that are in, nobody knows what's in them. They just say fragrance. And we have no knowledge of what we're putting on our kids' shampoo, what we're washing our clothes with, what we're putting underneath our arms. But all of these things are compounding on top of each other. And people will say, well, you don't know exactly which one it is. No, I it's don't know exactly which one it is. But I can say that they're compounding together to make a very uninhabitable environment. And so far before any two degrees is going to destroy us all in the environment, the forever chemicals that we continue to rub on our faces, 
put in our hair, spray on our food are going to do far more damage than methane or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And it's largely ignored by the majority of people that consider themselves environmentalists. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. I'm just California. We're a farming state. We do a lot of farming here. And the rates of autism in California are one in 26. And it's higher in boys. I have a five-year-old who was diagnosed as autistic last October. And it's not like it's going to be a debilitating thing for him. He's just has some social issues, but those didn't have to be there. And the reality is we live in an area that's close to farming. You don't know how much of that is just coming through in the water. And so it's a challenge I think that we're all going to continue facing. And we need to know like our microbiome, when you talk about the microbiome, people who don't study health may not know this, but we have roughly 30 trillion cells in our body that are human and roughly 39 that are alien, so to speak. They're the microbiome that we have. And it's an entire second brain that impacts our health. There's more and more knowledge now about the connection between the brain and the gut. And I got to tell you, when I consume more grain, and I'm just saying like I go out to a restaurant and I have some, a little bit of bread or whatever, but when I consume more grain, I find that I just have this feeling like I'm disconnected from my stomach. It affects how I eat, and then I'm just like, you know, I need to stop this. I'm going to go off grains for a while. And then everything just seems to round out. Like I don't experience things like icky joints as much or some things along those lines. And so I think it's important too that all of us have this conversation, not only about where our food's coming from, the health of the soil, its ability to sequester carbon, its ability to survive drought. So I'd love for you to talk about this as you're building soil on your properties using animal husbandry alongside this food food procurement too, just why this is so critically important for us all to consider as we move forward, as we think about food every single day. So we moved here in 2018, so not that long ago, and it was basically inhabitable desert environment. Basically nothing was here, just a few orange trees and they'd sprayed Roundup and all that. And the water infiltration. So if you took a tube, imagine a two inch tube and you put it down to the ground and you poured four cups of water into it and waited for that water in the PVC tube against the ground to seep into the ground. It was just about four minutes <laughs> and it's at 19 seconds last time I checked. So you have to imagine how much more spongy the soil is. And so we had major flooding here in January and we did have some damage. I'm not saying we had no damage, but most of our fields were completely undamaged unless it was like a strawberry field where it got buried in silt and so it couldn't survive. But anything that had cover crops on it, anything. And even the strawberry fields got lots of salt silt that came down the mountains, but it didn't destroy. It wasn't like washed away. And there was just rocks left like some of my neighbors because we have this really spongy soil that's covered the way that it should be. So on one side, we're experiencing all these successes. I haven't bought any fertilizer or any inputs whatsoever, except for some A for my animals in the last three years. And we're producing $600,000 worth of produce a year. But on another side, we're actually losing money and it's not a success. And that is because this style of farming that I'm doing and regenerative farming as a whole, not necessarily if you were just doing meat or doing grains and cover crops and stuff, but doing vegetables in this way 
is very labor intensive. And so we need labor and we don't have a family of 12. Like when people farmed this way <laughs> a long time ago, they had a big family and yeah, of course our whole family could live off of that amount of money if it was all coming back, but it's not all coming back to the farm. It's getting paid out in labor that's then leaving the farm. And so how do we build community for the future that wants to build food for that community and then excess food to sell outside of that community. And that's really what I'm examining. It's what I'm working on with the farm in Texas. And I don't think California is the place because of all the restrictions on how many people can live somewhere, mm -hmm. what you can do and all these different things. The bureaucracy is counterintuitive to what I thought California was committed to if you had asked me five or six years ago. And so we're very pro-business as much as people think we aren't. <laughs> I don't think we are pro-business. I think we're pro-large corporations owned by BlackBock and well, Vanguard. Yeah, that's what I mean. We're pro-lobbyists, like whoever has a lobbyist. But we aren't pro-business. I don't think that the small and medium-sized business is at the legislative table at all anymore. No, I agree I with you there. Absolutely. Completely discarded. Mm -hmm. And running a brick-and-mortar business in California is practically impossible and they intentionally make parts of your business illegal so they can then fine you for it so that they can essentially have a whole nother stream of revenue from taxation but it's like oh no those are covid seats and you're not allowed to have umbrellas and you have umbrellas and i have to pay a fine because you put umbrellas on the outdoor seating which we only allowed you to have tables and chairs no umbrellas no heaters and you've broken that law that's the kind of thing and that's just not to that oh your compost pile it's more than six feet tall and da, 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 and now you have to pay a fine oh you're only allowed to have one farm worker per 40 acres and I have to pay a fine. It's just on and on and on. And so I'm looking at this future and how does it look? And I hope that as people are moving to other states like Idaho and Texas, and they're committed to the environment, they don't vote in such a way that ushers in these same kind of things that have destroyed the economics of California for the small and medium-sized business because often people go and they vote with their heart with very little regard for the actual real-world effects of these bigger government, bigger oversight, bigger bureaucracy has on the actual innovation of people trying to do the best. Do you have any familiarity with David Wan and his work? I'd be happy to make an intro. At any rate, he's running a community or he's part of a community that's similar to the one that I think that you're hoping to build in the state of Colorado. I interviewed him for the release of a fiction work that he put out called Tickling the Bear, which was about many of these subjects. But that's really, I think, an interesting effort. They do have a farm on location and it feeds the community and then they sell surplus. It sounds very much like what you're describing. And I think Colorado is another area that you might want to look at. I mean, I've already purchased 250 acres mm. in Texas, so I don't think I'm highly invested in Texas. Mm. And the project is a regenerative farm with a hospitality component, an on-farm restaurant, and an on-farm brewery. So like, as we have the brewery in LA, I realized... The grain has to transport to the brewery, and then the beer always has to leave the brewery, except for what's sold on site. It has to go to the grocery store, has to go to other restaurants, other mm -hmm. wherever. But if the brewery is on the farm, some grain can be brought from the farm, grown on the farm, and then 100% of the grain can then be fed back to the animals on the farm. So that's actually something that doesn't need to travel. The beer is going to have to leave. And so... I think that this model where we'll be able to have the grain from the brewery right on site, we'll have an on-farm tap room and restaurant and then 30 tiny houses and this regenerative farm that supports nearby farmers markets and CSA program and everything is a way that the 
agro-tourism supports the greater mission because it's much easier to make money on a tiny house for $150 a night than a head of cabbage for 80 cents that take a dollar or whatever a head of cabbage goes for that took you four months to grow. And so it's very hard. And the economics, I'm always lining my prices up with what I would call degenerative organic produce that is disregarding the whole soil health. And so they are doing it all mechanicalized with machines using herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides are just organic ones. Mm-hmm. And then I'm trying to keep up with that. And it's all no machinery, hand weeding, rotating the crops, growing 300 different biological, different 300 different kinds of produce on one farm. It's very challenging for me to match the price, but I can't charge my restaurant more. And then my investors are like, oh, so we're buying premium cabbage from your farm. So it has to be fair to everybody. So it's very hard to make it all match up in this current model. But the model where the restaurant is the farm on the farm, it's a little bit, we're the end user. So this is a different model and that I hope that it's going to work better in the long run. And then that there's also space for people to live on the farm and contribute and have work trade or have discounted rent or get paid less money, but they live there, however that would work out. So I'm trying to build that kind of community and really come up with ways that we can feed people the healthiest food. Also on a completely, I'm moved to a place that's not highly agricultural area. Yes, people have cows and there's hay being farmed, but there's not rows and rows and orchards and orchards like there is here in California, because I recognize that even though I'm an organic farm and the farm behind me is an organic farm and I have wilderness on the side, there's this other side where there's helicopters spraying on a regular basis. And I noticed that my kids get rashes and stuff after the spraying and we're drinking the well water here. So part of moving to a very rural place in Texas where there's not rows and rows that are getting sprayed, there's just cows and pasture is because I want clean water for my children to drink. I mean, it sounds so basic, like this should be a human right, right? But we don't line up our policies and our practices around ensuring that we have clean water to drink and air to breathe. I wanted to use the strawberry example for a moment, just because you have experience growing them. And I'm here in California, Central Coast. If I drive down through Watsonville towards Monterey along Highway 1, and many people have experienced this, it's a beautiful drive. You drive through farmland. And a lot of the things that are being grown along that corridor are strawberry, Brussels sprouts, artichoke, berries, like we do a lot of raspberries and blackberries lettuces and things like that. But even the organic farms, this is why you say generative organic. I just want people to be aware of really what the difference is here. I grow my own strawberries, strawberries that are fruitful year round. And I grow them in my front yard and it's a cover crop for me underneath the trees. I take care of them. And every once in a while, we get some great fruit from it that the slugs don't get, right? Even when I try to buy almost everything local, I still get deliveries of things from authors that I'm going to interview on the podcast. (laughs) I mean, I'm a mother of four, uh, actually I have five kids because I adopted a a big son that's grown up that I adopted from Guatemala as well. So I have dogs and cats. And so I try to get everything local, but, and I unfortunately also support the big corporations that I'm challenged by sometimes because I'm just trying to make it all work. I own three farms and four restaurants and a brewery and building this project in Texas. Yeah. Well, it's unavoidable. Sometimes you need a delivery. And in this case, it's an author. I'm actually really excited about this, but she wrote baby's first book of banned books. (laughs) 
So it'll be a fun discussion. All right. So Excellent. diving back into strawberries, I just want people to know how much plastic is used to grow strawberries. I mean, it's literally lined on the fields and then they have these little pockets between where each strawberry plants is planted on the ground, right? But it's essentially these giant sheets of plastic. It's tilled every year. They remove the sheets of plastic, which I'm sure just goes into landfill and then place new ones every season. Now, how is fill the shit out of it first and then put in fungicide and then put the plastic back it's just so gross and so i mean i know not everybody can grow strawberries but there are varieties that produce fruit year-round that are relatively easy to grow and i just encourage people to try that one out even if you just have to get one of those strawberry pots that you can grow on your deck or something like that and i have to tell you that the fruit i get is so sweet and so divine And it's operating as an ornamental too, because they look pretty and they're underneath my cherry tree in the front yard. So you can grow a lot of your own stuff, even if you just have a little bit of soil. So it's something that I like to point to, but I'd love to know how you are growing those strawberries differently, just so people can get an idea of what that looks like on a regenerative farm. So we grow our strawberries. So the first batches of strawberries we did, we used a weed barrier which was also plastic. It was a post-consumer woven plastic, but it was still plastic. And that bed lasted a few years and we planted marjoram and oregano in between to try to keep the slugs and the the snails and the roly-polies off of them. And then we went into doing a different model where we use those smart pots that are like above ground, they're felt pots, and they're able to still have the microbiology going between. So they're still connected to the ground, but it's above ground. And so it's a little bit harder for the slugs and the roly-poly. So it's like long rolls of these kind of round pots like that. And then in our greenhouses, in the connections where the greenhouses come together, we have gutters, like house gutters that have been kind of retrofitted, as well as recycled pipes that were old, like PVC pipes that were sitting around the farm with that have holes in them and with soil inside of them on above ground in between the greenhouses. So those are the different ways that we grow strawberries on the farm. And we use oranges cut in half to draw the roly-polies away. I don't know what pictures we sent you, but there's a picture of me breastfeeding in front of the greenhouse that's often used for podcasts and stuff. And there's oranges between all the lettuce in the greenhouse. People always ask like, why is there a half of an orange between all the lettuce in the greenhouse? And it's to keep the roly-polies eating that instead of the lettuce. There was butter lettuce heads instead of eating the lettuce. And I love using the half oranges to draw pests away from things. We do it for a lot of different things. And it essentially just biodegrades into the ground. It's a byproduct. We make orange juice every day for the restaurants. So we have an entire bucket full of orange peels. But if you just have a small garden on your patio or something, buy some oranges and you can juice them and then use the, there's still some fruit inside and you put them upside down and the roly polies and other bugs will go to that because it's a higher carbohydrates than whatever you're growing. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. I've also heard about people using beer traps for their slugs and such. I did that once and didn't like, I don't know. I had a hard time seeing all the dead slugs. (laughs) So well in farming, I thought I had a very naive view. I grew up on a farm, it was like an apple orchard and I wasn't really, I was a kid, I don't know, I wasn't present to what was what. And then I had a very naive view from my vegan restaurant owner of what was gonna happen on the farm. 
and I thought there will be no death on my farm. Yeah, and there's then no way. <laughs> the first couple of weeks we had bought these special short sheep. We still use them for the vineyards and for the hops. They're baby doll sheep and they're short, so they can only eat so much up. So you can graze them in orchards and other places. Anyways, the first couple weeks we had them, a neighbor's dog came and killed all of them. And they were inside of a thing at nighttime. And then they were out free at the daytime and this dog dug under into their thing and killed them all. And then we found him. Then he was sitting in there with all the dead sheep in the morning. And that kind of broke my barrier of thinking I was going to have a farm with nothing dead, nothing dying. And what I realized about whether you're a paleotarian or a vegan or a vegetarian or a pescatarian or to be alive is to be on the back of death. And if it's on your plate specifically, or it died out of your sight and you don't get to see it, there's death on every plate. And to live in a world where you think that there's not is pure naivety. And we need to be realistic. I mean, you plow, look at cabbage, or you look at those strawberry fields. You tell me how many moles, voles, ground squirrels, and everything else died for those strawberries to exist. You look at a field of cabbages or artichokes or any of those things, you tell me what had to die for that to exist. And so to think I am a vegan and I don't kill anything for my diet, it's just like putting a higher value on a cow than on a squirrel. And I'll take it even one step further. 25% of life on the planet lives in the top eight inches of topsoil. So for us to think that it's okay to just plow the topsoil over and over and over again, it's imagine if we took, what could we look at, think about is like the ocean, the coral reefs or the Amazon rainforest. If you just tilled it, coral reefs or the Amazon rainforest, and then planted one species of coral or one species of palm trees, it would no longer be the Amazon rainforest. It would no longer be the coral reefs. That is essentially what we're doing to the soil over and over again. And I'm not saying people have to never till. I'm a radical centrist. People always say I'm the radical left, the radical right. I'm a radical centrist. Like I'm logic-based. Like I'm just saying we can't do it over and over and over and over and over again and not think that there's an impact. That's 25% of life on the planet. And we can scream about the polar bears on the polar ice caps. But honestly, that microbiology, that 25% of life on the planet in the topsoil is much more impactful to our life than the polar bear. And so we have to care about it at least as much as we care about the polar bear. That's all that I'm asking or requesting from humanity. And how it occurs to me as a lifelong environmentalist in the truest sense of the word as around chemicals and the cleanliness of the commons, the water, the food, the soil. It feels to me like people are mostly just ignoring that 25% of life on the planet as if it has no value. And it is 70% compatible with, what did you say? The 39 billion things in our body? 39 trillion. So there's 39 trillion microbiology in our body on top of our cells. And it's 70% compatible with the life in healthy topsoil. Yeah. So no matter if you believe- Soil-based organisms, 100%. So if we believe that it's, we want to believe in God or we want to believe in science, I'm not, I don't really care. We're 70% compatible with the soil, which means we are meant to eat the food of the healthy soil to replenish that 39 trillion 
microbiology in our body. That is what that means. No matter whether you want to believe in the perfection of divine order in God or the perfection of science or the accident of science, it's obvious that that's what we're meant to be connected to. And the more we try to eat food from a package, from a factory, from a printer, from growing cells in a tube or in a tank and all that stuff, we are disconnecting from that 25% of life on the planet. And if we lose that life that is in a mass extinction event, we're going to lose ourselves because that is how we replenish our immune system. Yep. So you've talked about growing food in a more sterile way, aka vertical farming, hydroponics, etc. I'd love for you to share your views on that and then open a discussion around why, again, this might not be the best path. This is a controversial opinion again. I mean, I'm confronted by the green movement in quotation marks, trying to make everything so technological instead of recognizing the perfection of our health comes from the healthy soil. So when we grow hydroponics, and I was actually a hydroponic pot grower for years. This was one of my past lives. I did that for a living. And when we're growing, even if it's organic liquid nutrients that's been extracted and made extra strong, and then we're putting nitrates into water, and in that water, we're growing a tomato, let's say, then the roots are just taking up the nitrates. But without the microbiology in the soil to transform those nitrates, those nitrates are going right into the tomato. A fresh tomato off the vine grown in soil has all this stuff that is cancer fighting on it and in it. And that is not the same in a tomato that is just taking the nitrogen straight up, the nitrate straight up from this very highly extracted version of it with no microbiology to transform it into anything else. And again, we go back to that miracle of life that we are meant to live with healthy soil. People can know that we need to ground and so they can buy bamboo sheets that you plug into your wall and never have to take your shoes off outside, I guess. But the reality is we're meant to live with the soil. And the more we get away from that, the less healthy we're going to be as human beings. And I feel like a dinosaur in a relic because everybody's just like, get with the times. We're going to drive electric cars. We're going to extract all the cobalt. We're going to grow vertical farming. We're going to live in smart cities. And your antiquated way of life is the problem. It's not like farming is not the problem the extractive consciousness around getting the most is the problem and how we are constantly can surrendering. And I say this over and over, we are surrendering our resilience for convenience. And at some point we have to realize we have to do it the way we can be the apex species. We don't need to rewild the whole world. If every farm transitioned to a regenerative way, if you look at the mountain that's wild across the river right now from my farm, and you look at the soil at my farm, there's much more carbon sequestered. There's much more soil health. There's much more microbiology. There's much more diversity because I'm stewarding the land to be even better than wilding. We don't have to have this like villainize the farmers and take their land away and rewild it. We can actually work with the farmers to train them to how they can steward the land. And instead of putting all this money into vertical farming and growing food in cities, we can use those subsidies instead of for corn or soy or whatever to grow more carbon in the soil. 
And I liken all this vertical farming to when we brought cows to the city in the early 1900s, we brought cows into New York City and we started feeding them garbage and we were keeping them in buildings and their milk started coming out blue and people got brucellosis and people died and all this stuff happened. And so we didn't say, oh, the cows don't belong in Manhattan. We said, let's sterilize all the milk. Let's pasteurize, ultra pasteurize all the milk kill all the bacteria. Well, why milk is healthy is that the mother, the cow, or even if it's my milk, we are giving our immunity to the next generation. So you kill that, you sterilize that. Well, then of course it's not a healthy product. Of course it's not good for you. And so that's the same thing. It was like, we're growing, let's grow food in the cities. It's going to be awesome. Well, it's like that. It's short-sighted. It's not really looking at the long-term, what do we need to have human health? And so again, it's what's the real cost of that? What is the real cost of growing food in a sterile environment? Well, I think that we've come into an age when there are many people who are even afraid of soil because they see things like, oh, well, there was some listeria issue with romaine lettuce. And so I'm worried about maybe that came from the soil, not realizing it came from unclean conditions for the farm workers, most likely, right? And additionally, that we've just so trashed our own microbiomes that now we're more sensitive. And it's like, if we were actually consuming food that we got from a local CSA that was growing regenerative organic, or going to the farmer's market and getting only organic produce that's grown locally within 100 miles of our doorstep, right? That we would be feeding our bodies the nutrition it needed. Now, I buy organic, almost everything, right? I also mm -hmm. acknowledge that when I dine out, I'm mostly not getting that because I don't have a beautiful sage restaurant to just walk over to up here in Northern California. As hippy trippy dippy as Santa Cruz County is, there really aren't that many options. And I would love to see us move in a direction where this is just the norm. But the only way for it to become the norm is if more of these large farming operations buy in and change. So what do you think we can do to move them in that direction? We're talking about Bronzoni farms up here on the Central Coast or the Locatelli's. I mean, they're all these old Italian families. They have to lose market share. And this is sad for me right now because this is what we're struggling with. During the pandemic, I was selling a lot of boxes from my CSA and we bought extra vans and we did all this stuff and all this infrastructure. And we've lost 70% of that those gains that we got during the pandemic for our box program. And we're now losing money on our box program. And we're facing like, do we keep doing it? How can I do it? We're doing more advertising. We're doing all the things I can try to get. But I just need to sell 250 boxes a week. And I live 45 minutes to Los Angeles. And we deliver to every neighborhood in Los Angeles. And I can't get 250 people a week. During the pandemic, it was far more than that. But that was fear purchasing. That was, I'm scared to go touch the keypad at Whole Foods, so I'm going to order from this farm. It's not, I'm committed to what this farm's practices are. And my experience is that the consumer is unwilling to be flexible, is unwilling to eat seasonally, is, oh, I was getting your box, but now it's winter time and we're only getting citrus and avocados and there's no other fruit. Well, yeah it's California and it's winter time. So you're getting citrus. Like you don't live in New York where there's no fruit through the winter. So be grateful, but people don't have it that way. They're like, I want peaches and I want this and I want that. 
So I'm going to not get the box through the winter time because your only fruit is citrus in the winter time. Or you're getting a lot of broccoli and you're sick of broccoli. You're sick of broccoli. You're sick of cabbage. And then the summertime comes. I don't like to eat any nightshades. So your box is too many tomatoes and eggplant in the summertime and blah, blah, blah. Well, so much of that is propaganda too. Very few people are sensitive at all to tomato. And it's amazing to me that we've just bought into that. I mean, I'm Italian, right? You might get that from the last name, but I'm also French right? And there's this love of food that I think we're losing in these, that's endemic in these cultures where it's just, we want something that's fast and cheap and real good nutrition isn't fast and it isn't cheap. No, it's not. So how do we shift this? I mean, the norm in France, you might spend 30% of your money on food, right? And here we spend more than 30% of our money on rents. But we're looking to like and only 10% of our money. Yes. And so I don't know the answer. And I was literally just having this conversation this morning with my social media guy. How do I connect with people for them to want to see the value? We just did a cost comparison at Whole Foods for my box. So we went to Whole Foods, we bought this week, and then we bought next last week, two weeks ago. And it was $122 for the $55 box. And then it was $190 for the $55 box. Now that is a savings, a major savings for the person who's getting it delivered right to their door. But they have to be flexible. Yes, they have to eat this time of year. Actually, I still have broccoli. It's July and I um, still have broccoli because we did have a very cool spring. So we got an extra rough selection of broccoli. But yeah, we're having watermelon and cantaloupes and cucumbers. And yes, it's summertime. We're having summer things right now. And are people willing to eat that way? And we started on a survey monkey and people were like, well, I want it to be a make your own and I want to be able to have exactly the produce I want. Well, how does that work for the farmer? You want me to buy it from New Zealand and then co-pat? And that's what all these like farm direct to you where you can pick potatoes year round or you can pick broccoli year round. It's not farm direct to you. It's farm direct to the to a distribution center that's compiling it and then sending it to you. And the produce that you get when you buy my box is never longer than 48 hours from being harvested, with the exception of maybe avocados. But we send out avocados hard, so they're pretty fresh too. But mate, just only avocados because we pick a bin at a time, so it's like a 1,000 pounds at a time. But the average avocado that you get in the grocery store is 30 days old. Mm -hmm. And the produce you're getting is two weeks old. There's degradation. Forget about that it's been dipped in bleach, high-pressure packaged, blah, 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 to kill all the microbiology. Forget about that. The other thing is the nutrient value has dropped as it's dying. And literally I'm giving you something that is still alive that was just harvested, but I don't know how to communicate that. I don't know how to have the, and I'm doing a bunch of podcasts right now. I'm doing a bunch of stuff to mostly just to communicate. We just did a film with Kiss the Ground. If people go to the, we just did a, they're doing a docu-series and the first film was about my farm, but I'm really just trying to get people to care. And you're saying, how do we do that? I don't know your podcast. I think we do this. I think we have this conversation more and more and continue to have the conversation. And people are quick to get onto things that are easy for them to do and then have the feeling of I'm doing good. I always say people want to be able to have the sin, but have it washed away. <laughs> like I want to be able to eat the fried food, but at the vegan restaurant. So it's okay. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to just have people genuinely care. And I think people are apathetic. I think people don't know. I don't think people know that 25% of life is in the topsoil. I don't think people know that they're eating sterile food that's not replenishing their microbiology. 
I don't even know. I think people barely even have enough attention span to listen to a whole podcast. It's just 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds swipe. And so I do think we have to figure out ways to communicate with the consumer to have them care and even know what the differences are. And I don't want anything I've said today to be like, don't buy organic. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying buy local first and buy local from a farm that you can trust. And it may not be certified organic, but talk to them, ask them what their practices are. Go visit, say, can I come visit the farm? That might sound crazy, but I know plenty of small farm producers that are not certified organic and are doing amazing practices. But if I didn't have my team from the restaurant and my office staff, I don't know that I'd be certified organic or certified regenerative. It's work. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It's some money and it's a lot of work and weeks and weeks. It's every single seed. And the more biodiverse you are, the more food you're growing, the harder it is. If you just have a field and you grow cabbage in the wintertime and cilantro in the summertime, handing in your receipts and doing whatever was being grown, not that hard. It's pretty easy. If you're growing 300 things and you need to provide receipts for 300 different kinds of food, the seeds for them, and then also the plan of where everything was planted and what was rotated and make sure you're not growing the same thing in the same place the next year, that's a much harder job. And so I think resilient community is the answer to everything. So I don't know how. But asking the consumer to care, asking the consumer to purchase in their own community and asking people to then make requests of the big agriculture. Like Gabe Brown has millions of acres in regenerative agriculture and it's Pepsi and General Mills and all these companies. Companies are switching, but the market share has to demand it. And that's really where we're at. We have to demand it. And I hear people say stuff the other day, someone sent me like a TikTok and it was like, well, the real problem is we just have to stop growing food. And I want to throw my phone like, okay, no, the real problem is not that we have to stop growing food. It's that we have to care about the way that we are growing food. Yeah. Wow. Well, I just felt like I needed to say here, here. Now I understand too, there are some new films that are coming out that are also helping people better understand this issue. I understand that Kiss the Ground, aren't they releasing another film called Common Ground or is that unrelated project? It is related. I think Kiss the Ground, the organization is part of it. And there's some of the executive producers are the same. And my mm -hmm. brother was a producer on it. My brother is the founder of Kiss the Ground, the nonprofit. So there is some connection there. And it just really is, was premiered at Tribeca in New York. And it is coming out in the fall. We're very excited about that. Yeah. I saw it's already seeing critical acclaim, which is fantastic. And then there's other documentary that is presently out and available to watch for free that's narrated by Rosario Dawson called The Need to Grow. And while I didn't love all of it, frankly, one of the pieces that I found really enticing that they covered pretty darn well was that whole concept about the nutrition value of food shifting from the time of harvest to a much later moment. And so while it might not still be available for free, I think you can get lifetime access to it for only $7. And I've just been waiting to be able to see Common Ground. That is one I'm really excited about as well. Yeah, and Kiss to the Ground is doing a mini documentary series once a month. And the first one just came out. It was actually about my farm and they're going to be right on their website and it is free and they're called Stories of Regeneration. Mm, that's fantastic. So the first one is about Soul Heart Farm. And the second one is they're going to be about Yachty Wang, who has Oatman's Flats and they're doing regenerative grain in Arizona. So I look forward to the subsequent films coming out, but they're doing this mini doc series 
And the first one that just is out is mine. And so I invite people to go watch that. It's only 11 minutes or 13 minutes. So not everybody has the bandwidth to watch a whole film about it, but it really does break it down in a shorter period of time and shows that I did everything we did in just five years. And we have 18 inches of black, dark soil where there was just rocks and dust. And we're growing 300 different species of food and $600,000 worth of produce a year with half the water that my neighbors are using to just grow oranges or just grow avocados. And so there is really powerful, compelling evidence that a little bit of commitment to a shift in how we do things can make a big difference on how much food you can produce. It's just a matter of how do you get that labor? How do you build a community that either is willing to pay that labor to be built into the cost of the food? Or how do we get a community that wants to participate in the growing of their food? Those are the big questions that I investigating in my own life right now. Well, I want to follow that journey, Molly. I definitely want to follow that journey. Now, something that we didn't talk about is I essentially grew up on a commune myself. And we grew a lot of our own food. And I have distinct memories of even just bringing a goat into the kitchen, into a yolk to milk it in the morning so that I would have milk and that my mom would have milk for her coffee. And this is just a much different way to grow up than many people experienced of our generation, Gen Xers, right? Like, No, my kid walked out every morning with their cup with a scoop of organic hot chocolate mix. And they walk out and my oldest son is milking the cows. And he milks them and they choose, they like each of them has a cow that they think their milk tastes the best. And so <laughs> this morning. Well, it's probably just uniquely suited for their microbiome is now addicted to that cow's milk, right? Yes. And so this is a beautiful way for kids to grow up and also probably antiquated. And But I do think that it's a powerful way for people to grow up. And I hope that me doing this makes a difference for my children in the long term. I'm sure it is and it will. So I mean, I'm now hearing my eight-year-old and you're probably having similar experiences with your eight-year-old, but I have, he's parroting to me things about, oh, well, I have a sore throat, so I'm just going to go into our garden, grab some peppermint and make myself some tea because some things are just so freaking easy to grow. And so if people are intimidated, get started with something simple, but just remember that the invasives like peppermint, you plant it one place, it'll end up everywhere. <laughs> it will end up everywhere. I always say everybody's indoctrinating their kids. So it makes yeah. sure you're indoctrinating them with what you want in the future. That's right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Molly. I look forward to our next conversation because I do want to invite you back to talk more about these issues and especially as things continue to develop with the community that you're working to build. I applaud your efforts and I hope to one day get to meet you in person. Oh, I hope so as well. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Molly's Restaurant, especially if you happen to be visiting LA anytime soon, visit sageveganbistro.com. There you can find links to her other work. I will also be sure to include links with show notes, as I always do, including to that new docuseries with Kiss the Ground. Now, as I mentioned this in a few of our episodes, if you come to caremorebebetter.com, you will see so much more than you see in show notes on whatever platform you're watching this on. I include complete transcripts, links to past episodes that cover similar topics so that you can deepen your understanding. And in this case, interviews with John Rulak, who was the executive producer of Kiss the Ground, Paul Hawken, who wrote Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, Tom Newmark, who is the co-founder of the Carbon Underground, and so many more. 
So in this particular topic, it's almost like you can choose your own adventure and continue to deepen your understanding as you hear from experts in their fields. If you go ahead and subscribe to our newsletter as well, you'll receive a five-step guide to help unleash your inner activist. I include in there several links to resources around climate activism and regeneration as well, because those are two primary topics of this particular podcast. But that document can also serve as a project management tool. It's super easy to use. I kind of took my business school into activism perspective to create it. And so I encourage you to sign up for the newsletter, even if just to receive that, it comes as your welcome gift with an email almost immediately. Now, as we prepare to close this show, I just want to say to all of you, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time and attention. And if you loved today's episode, I hope that you'll subscribe and share this episode with people in your community, somebody that you think deserves or would benefit from learning it. The simple act will help so many more people discover the show. And if you leave me a written review, know that I read every single one and may even feature it on this podcast. Thank you listeners and watchers now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can stop using poison to grow food, create regenerative systems and communities, and build a future and a planet that we want to live on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. Mm